0: Father, we come before you this morning with uh, with humbled hearts. And we recognize, Lord, the truth of what David declares, that you are high. You are high and you are holy and you are mighty. And you are magnificent. And in comparison, Lord, we are infinitely lowly people. Uh, we come this morning, Lord, as... Uh, as as humble beggars really in a sense uh, recognizing Lord that we need what we could never achieve for ourselves, what only you can give to us Uh, Lord the only way we even have opportunity to approach you is because you've given us what we could never earn for ourselves your grace and your mercy and your kindness poured out in your son Jesus who died and bled as our substitute and so we come before you with humble hearts this day Lord with the same desire in our hearts that you had that we might, in this place, exalt the two things that are important to you, your name and your word. Lord, we recognize these are the most important things we could ever seek to accomplish as we gather to worship you, to exalt your name, for your name is above all things, to exalt your word, which, which enriches us, which challenges us which plants itself in our hearts and grows and bears fruit for your glory. and So that's why we've come. We've come to worship you. We've come to exalt you. And yet, Lord, we come recognizing our own weakness and recognizing our own frailty. Lord, we recognize that we have minds that are easily misled. We have minds that are easily influenced by the world around us. Uh, We are easily enticed, Lord, far too easily enticed by the things of the world and much of our time is spent chasing after false loves that draw us away from you and lord we recognize too that we have weak wills our wills are 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 not strong often lord what we promise to do for you we often fail to do the commitments we make are often weak and shallow and simple and easily tossed aside lord we recognize our weakness this morning And yet our hearts rejoice to read the words of David that tells us that you have a love that is steadfast and faithful. That even when our minds are weak and even though we're easily misled and even though we don't often fulfill the commitments we make to you, your love is steadfast and faithful, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And so for that we glory this morning, Lord. We thank you that though we are inconsistent, you are always consistent though our devotion to you is not always perfect your devotion to us is right and steadfast and faithful and we thank you for that Lord this morning we thank you for the confidence that we have in that and so we come before you humbly and we come with repentant hearts Lord asking you to to forgive our weakness and to forgive our frailties and to forgive Lord those areas and moments and ways in which we've fallen short even this week fill us Lord with your forgiveness and your grace And Lord, we pray that you would, through your word this morning and through uh, our our gathered worship with brothers and sisters, that you would encourage us, that you would empower us, Lord, that you would motivate us to uh, to go from this place out into a fresh new week, work in our families, school, or wherever your will might take us this week. Empowered, Lord, to live for you. Empowered, Lord, to look for opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus with those who would need to hear it. Empowered to, to live lives of holiness and faithfulness before a watching world. Lord, you must, you must work that work in us. And so we submit ourselves to you this morning, asking you to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. You do that work this morning as we worship you with humble hearts. We pray these things in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Turn your Bibles, please, to John chapter 3. It happens to be a Gideon Bible, and you stole from some hotel room. God forgives you. You are forgiven. Those of you that travel, have traveled some, will relate to this quite possibly my surprise being in I think it was Israel and there in the hotel room drawer was a Gideon Bible all around the world the word is delivered and we're grateful for that grateful for that ministry So we spent, this is the third week on John chapter 3. There will be several more. Um, Pastor Greg began this chapter, uh, the first part, uh, dealing with the story of Nicodemus and uh, what it means to be born again. And he defined that very clearly for us. Being born again is what the theological term we use for that is regeneration. And uh, what that means is the act of God by which he imparts eternal life on those who are dead in their sins, thus making them his children. John Piper has something to say about that. He says, We do not cause our new birth by an act of faith, just the reverse. The cry of faith is the first sound that a newborn babe in Christ makes. Regeneration, as we call it, is all of God. We do not get God to do it by trusting Christ. We trust Christ because he has done it in us already. And then we move from this message on regeneration to just so much doctrine in this chapter, in this entire gospel. And we, we'll hopefully we'll benefit and, and grow and be edified uh, through this process. But he moves from this lesson on regeneration uh, to uh, a lesson on justification. And I mentioned last week these, these parallel truths, these the, the parallel strands of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I know you're really, really interested in that, especially if you weren't here last week to hear my explanation of that. How can those things be reconciled? Well, they can't because they're parallel. They don't ever cross. But it's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. These. Parallel truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And that's all I'm going to say. If you want to know more about it, go to graceontheashley.com and listen to last week's sermon. And I'm going to read you this whole entire text again, beginning at verse 14 through verse 21. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Let's review a little bit what we went through last week as far as the outline's concerned. First, we see the sacrifice of Christ there in verses 14 and 15. Pastor Greg touched on this, and then I uh, touched on it uh, last week as well. That, that's, that it, Jesus is referring to a story that's back in, in Numbers chapter 21 And what was taking place, the people were grumbling, they were sinning against God. And, and so God sent what the Bible calls fiery serpents uh, to bite the people, and people were dying. Many people were dying. They had been judged, and they were dying. And they repented of that. Um, and so God tells Moses to put a bronze serpent on Uh, On a stick, on a pole, and lift it up. And for people who have been bit, if they would only look to the bronze serpent, they would be healed. People were saved, not by doing anything. People were saved by looking on the bronze serpent. They had to trust something that seemed... Rather foolish to them, I'm sure. And they had to look at it. And by just looking on it, it was sufficient for their salvation. Isaiah 45, verse 22 tells us, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. You might want to do that. There might be a hundred things or more that you're willing to do for your own salvation. But God commands that you only do one thing, that you look to Jesus Christ in faith. And Jesus is relating His crucifixion to this story in Numbers 21. And then we looked at the plan of God. That's the sacrifice of Christ and then the plan of of God. In uh, verse 16, Jesus, what we have to remember is that Jesus has already gone to heaven and... His spirit had already come on the church, and the church was already on mission. And John, in his old age, is looking back on this period of time. And he shares this gospel summary to remind... And and, and the gospel summary, I wish we had time to do this, but just John 3.16 and the first 14 verses of John 1, making that comparison is just it's just wonderful. You might want to do that yourself. And it's three phrases. And we just we're going to look at the three phrases for God so loved the world. We looked at that last week. That he gave his only son. Second phrase, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. First was the act. God's great love. And plus He adds the object of that love is the world. Paul defines that for us so well in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. That's, that's, uh, uh, Paul is explaining what Jesus explained in Nicodemus. Because of His great love for us, when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive. He birthed us. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you you must be born again. You're dead in your trespasses. You can't make yourself alive. I have to do that. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And the object is not the world as we might think. I mean, the object is the world. But what he's telling Nicodemus and telling us too is that salvation is not just restricted to race and salvation is not restricted just to color or to class. But it's the heritage of those who truly believe. The Jews, Nicodemus, they believe that God just loved the Jews they, that they were the only objects of the love of God, but no Gentile, slave, free, women, children, the world God loves the world, and God also loves the world in the sense that god's love for everyone shows up in God, in common grace, and god's love for everyone not only shows up in 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 common grace, but God's love for everyone shows up in the gospel invitation. Believe in Christ. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So the broad sweep of, of it all is that God's love shows up for everyone in the world. And the entire world and all of God's creation. In common grace, and for people, the gospel invitation. But he doesn't love all people the same. God has a special love for his people, he has for his own. Paul defines that best, the the reach of that in Ephesians 3, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length. And height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The breath being reaching out to whosoever believeth. The length reaching from all eternity past. Those who are dead in their trespasses, He called before the foundation of the world, the Bible teaches us. So, eternity past through eternity future. That's the length of it all. The length of the love of God. The depth of the love of God as it reaches down to, to, to the chiefest of sinners. Paul thought himself the chief sinner. John Bunyan wrote a book and thought himself the chief sinner. But the, the, the depth is that God's love reaches down to the... The, the, the worst of sinners and the height is that His love will take us to the height of God, heaven itself. And that's where we ended last week when we, we looked at, the, in the plan of God, we looked at the act. The act was His love, and the object of that love is the world Today, we'll see the result of the love of God and the purpose of the love of God. And next week, we'll look at the response of man. First, the result. What's the result of God's great love for us? Well, the result is God's great gift. It's the second phrase. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. There's an expression, He gave, and the gift, the, 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 the expression of that gift is His Son. Christ is the Father's gift. He was given to be the Savior. He was given to be the Redeemer. He was given to be a friend of sinners, as we sing. He was given to make atonement that's sufficient. For all, and to provide redemption that's large enough for all. And to make that happen, God had to give his son to be despised. To make that happen, God had to give his son to be rejected. To make that happen, God had to give his son to be cursed, to be crucified, to be counted guilty when He was perfect, all for our sakes. Paul tells us in Romans 4.25, He was delivered up. He was hung, hung up, hung on the cross for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In Romans 8, He said, He did not spare His own Son, but what? Gave Him up for us all. That's the result of God's love for the world, the gift of His Son. You know, Jesus speaking, just in the next chapter, we'll, we'll look at that in a few weeks. Jesus, uh, in, in, in John chapter 4, talks to the Samaritan woman, and He says to her, If you knew the gift of God... What's the result of God's great love? His great gift. And He says to her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. That's the gift of God. He tells the Jews in John chapter 6, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Ebenezer Erskine, you might be familiar with that name. There's a college named after him. I suspect there's a kind of, in that Presbyterian school Erskine? Yeah, okay. Ebenezer Erskine was a Puritan in Scotland a couple hundred years ago. And he used that particular verse when he was on trial by the General Assembly of Scotland. They accused him of offering Christ too freely in his evangelism. And so he used that verse, John six thirty-two, that it's only the Father that gives the true bread of heaven. Toward the end of his trial, he was thrown out of the church, thrown out of Scotland, he and his brother. No wonder the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Thanks be to God. For His inexpressible gift. What is the result of this love? The gift of Jesus Christ. And it is an inexpressible gift. How do we know God loves us? Is it because we're able to love each other a little bit? (laughs) Do we know God loves us because the world is a beautiful place? Do we know God loves us Because we value love? Nope. God loves us because He gave His one and only Son. His unique Son. And it is in looking upon that Son, looking upon the selfless, self-sacrificing Jesus Christ, looking upon Him, that we learn the character of God Himself. Because God gave him as a gift in the incarnation. We talk, to, we talk about him being the gift of God more at Christmas time, don't we? He gave him as a gift in the incarnation, but he gave him also as a gift, sacrificing himself on the cross for our sakes. We'll remember and celebrate that in a month or two. Someone had to bear the weight of sin. A spotless, perfect lamb had to be sacrificed so that God could save His people. And and when I say God could save His people, you might ask yourself, and who might these people be? Well, Jesus tells us who they are in John 17 verse six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The spotless, perfect lamb had to be sacrificed so that God could save his people, and those people are the people that God gives to the Son. Charles Wesley's favorite, uh, most popular, most well known. Hymn we sing around Easter. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love. That's a wonderful restatement of John 3.16. Amazing love. Christian, God loves you. I hope you know that. hope that's affirmed in your life. You have experienced the great love of God. Unbeliever, those of you here today who are not believers, I want you to know, too, God loves you. Do you know that? God has demonstrated His love for you in Jesus Christ. And He proved it in the most powerful way, not just giving His Son in the Incarnation, but He proved it in the most powerful way in that His Son He sent to the execution chamber, so be it, in your place. That's the result of the love of God. And then thirdly, we see the purpose of that love. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The purpose of that love, in in just two words, one word, the church. The purpose of the love of God. John Calvin said, Christ brought life because the Heavenly Father loves the human race. And wishes that they should not perish. We see this quite a few times throughout uh, John. And especially in these verses when he says that whoever believes in him. Be, the word believe and faith are the same. Faith a belief to John is faith. The word, you do a search. The word, I see you getting out your phones right now, getting ready to do a search. I know. I, know, I do the same thing when he's preaching. I got the Bible a hundred times on my phone. Faith is the same thing believing. And you know, in the Gospel of John, John does not use that word faith one time. But he uses the word belief or believing 98 times in the gospel. His word for faith is believing or belief. And so we learn the recipient of God's love. More specifically, whoever believes in Him. That's faith. That's the same phrase that he uses in uh, verse 15. Go back to 15. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. You know, we focus on that verse 16 so much throughout our lives. It's the first verse we memorized, probably. We don't memorize Scripture anymore, do we? We learn the recipient, more specifically of that love. Whoever believes in Him, that's faith. And John's, uh, John, repeating that again from verse 15, just shows us again how broad the love of God is for all those who believe and how useless the love of God is on some level for those who don't believe. That's faith alone. Only belief. And that story I told you about in verses 14 and 15 describes that that faith and belief can also mean looking on Jesus not 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 just just taking a look at who he is but looking upon Jesus in faith looking to Jesus is redefined as faith sola fide faith alone A W Pink helps us here with some of the negatives in Numbers chapter 21 that helps us understand this gift of faith a little bit more. He said they were not told back there in Numbers 21 when Moses told them to look at the brazen serpent. They were not told to manufacture some healing ointment so that they could put it on their, their bites and they would be healed. They were not told to get relief from others who were wounded. They were not told to fight the serpents. They were not told to make an offering to the serpent. They were not told to pray to the serpent. They were not told to look at Moses. They were not told to look at their wounds. Look on the bronze serpent and you will be healed. And Jesus says, look to Me in faith and you will be saved. And you know, I suspect there were some back in Numbers chapter 21 who were bitten by a serpent and dying. And they thought, that is the stupidest thing I ever thought of. And I'm not going to look on that bronze serpent. And they died. And there are people in this room today who've not looked at Jesus in faith, and you will perish. It's the purpose of Christ being raised on the cross in order that all who believe in Him will have eternal life. It's what John's telling us in this chapter. Look at how many times Nicodemus hears about it, and look how many times he tells us... that faith, How important faith is. Faith is uh, belief. Believe is in verse 15. Believe is in verse 16. Believe is three times in verse 18. So that's five times of the 98 times. We'll see it in the gospel. And just about every message we've preached in John, I don't know, how many have there been since the first of the year? Just about every message we've preached since we've started this series in the gospel, we've reminded you of John's purpose in writing this. He tells us what his purpose is in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John keeps saying over and over and over that eternal life is for those who believe, those who have faith. Not works. Just faith. And his intention for this great love that God shows is that people not perish. God's love actually saves man from eternal destruction. And he looks on fallen humanity and doesn't want fallen humanity to perish. And so in his great love, he extends the gift of salvation through his Son, Jesus Christ. And how long does that love last? What's the duration of that love? Eternal life. So that they will not perish, but have eternal life. You know, the love you, the love you celebrated last Friday, that didn't last forever. I think Judy was fussing at me by Saturday. <laughs> Why did I say that? But God's love will never change. He will never stop loving His people eternal, even at the furthest distance of eternity, heaven itself. Charles Wesley wrote a lot of great hymns. Another verse he wrote, To him that in thy name believes, eternal life with thee is given. Into himself he all receives pardon and holiness and heaven. It's the duration of God's love. And to connect all this to what we've talked about earlier, when God told Nicodemus, when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, it refuted that popular idea we've already talked about, that, that the, the way of salvation. And it refutes the idea, the, the, the Jewish idea, with regard to the scope of salvation as, well, God loved the world. Jews didn't think in that day that God loved the world. Mm-hmm. They thought... They were the only ones. That universal offer of salvation and life in Jesus is just absolutely revolutionary here in the first century. And clearly, he tells us over and over and over, only those who've been born again will be the ones who believe. See that throughout chapter 3. We see that throughout Scripture as well. If you want to see it, you will see it. God will teach you this truth. Eventually, God will teach you this truth. And some of you rebel against this truth. But clearly, only those who have been born again will be the ones who believe. God loves the world. The world does not receive or benefit from that love until it believes in Jesus, has faith in In Jesus, the gift that the Father gave. And that that belief is more than just intellectual awareness. That belief is more than just agreement. No, it means to trust in, to rely on, to cling to. That's why to John, belief is faith. And God's love is so broad that He loves the world. His entire creation That's the broad sweep of His love. But on the other hand, God's love is so narrow as the company of people who have faith in Him. Who trust in Christ's death on the cross in their place. It's His ultimate purpose is the salvation of those in the world who would believe. Believers are saved from God's wrath and have eternal life. Those in the world who don't believe will perish. There's no third option. Faith in Jesus is the key to salvation. The one who has it has life. The one who doesn't have it doesn't have life. Faith is needed to complete our justification. Faith alone is one of the five solas of the Reformation. Sola, soli fide, Uh, 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 soli um, scriptura, soli fide, uh, soli Christus, uh, soli gratia, soli Deo gloria. The Word alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's the Reformation in a nutshell. That's why we're Protestants are here today. Faith is the indispensable channel of God's saving grace according to these verses and many, 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 many others. And so, consequently, our understanding... I started out last week saying that John 3.16 is probably the most misunderstood or misused verse in Scripture because we use it out of context. And so our understanding of John 3.16 will be incomplete until we are willing to deal with the nature of saving faith and seek to apply those truths to our lives. An attempt to deal with the true nature of faith means that we're going to deal with the true nature of Christianity. Why? Why? In dealing with faith, we're going to deal with the true nature of Christianity because of Hebrews 11, 6 says without faith it's impossible to please Him. Ephesians 2, 8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. You can, be, you can fast and you can be sorry for your sin and you can do many good deeds and you can be baptized and you can take communion and you can sell all your goods and give to the Poor and still lose your soul. It's faith alone. Flacius. You probably haven't heard that name. Um, A um, not a very high-profile name in the Reformation. Matthias Flacius. He's a contemporary of Martin Luther. Gave a succinct outline of this verse listing the causes of justification. Now listen to this. The remote now. I don't understand the use of all his words, but the remote efficient cause is God's love. The approximate efficient cause is the gift of God's Son. The material cause is Christ's exaltation on the cross. The instrumental cause faith. The final cause, eternal life. The purpose of God's love is the creation of the church, eternal life for believers, His people. And so we see the result is the gift that He's given. We see the purpose is the church. And then John sticks this verse 17 here to amplify in many ways what he's just said. How do I know it's to amplify? Because verse 17 starts with the word for. I don't need to give that explanation again, do I? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He just goes on in this one sentence to clarify his purpose and to clarify the consequences of this issue of belief or this issue of faith. The word for means that he's connecting it to what came before it. And it's interesting because... John 3:16 is between verses 14 and 15, and verse 17 uh, is it, it, it's such an interesting connection. And in verse 17 alludes to the incarnation, and verses 14 and 15 allude to his crucifixion. The immediate result of the love of God for the world is the mission of the Son, Jesus Christ. And this verse, uh, there's there's another step in this verse, too. It also gives us some insight into how we should approach our evangelism. Now, listen to this. This hits home. How do we approach our evangelism? If you approach the lost with condemnation, you will fail in your effort to reach them. You know why God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world? Because it's already condemned. The reason He didn't come into the world to condemn the world is because He came into a lost and already condemned world. He didn't come into some neutral world in order to save some and condemn others. No, He came into a lost, condemned world to save some of them. Next time he comes, he, and condemn that word as judgment. Next time he comes, he'll come in judgment. The first time he came is to seek and to save the lost. God's plan has been all along to reverse the human problem in those that he called before the foundation of the world. Namely, just to save them. Condemnation is that Jesus came to bring salvation. Those who reject that salvation will remain in their condemned state. So, Jesus did not come to judge people. Jesus came to die for people. Jesus came not to condemn them, but to save them. Let's just wrap this up. This is really the effect of the atonement. I haven't even talked about that. What did Christ's death accomplish? His, His purpose was not to make salvation... His death was not to make salvation a mere possibility... For the condemned world, but to save the world through the mission of Jesus Christ. Our faith and our good works, listen to me, our faith and our good works do not accomplish our salvation. Because anyone who is saved is saved through Jesus. His death is effectual for believers. For believers, the negative side is that we are not condemned. God is no longer angry with us. We have been reconciled to Him. The result of Christ's death is that sinners do not perish. The positive side is that we are provided eternal life. And eternity doesn't just refer to duration like I was talking about before. But the quality of the life lived in heaven that's found only in Christ. See, this life, this life is just, it's just characterized by, by, by mortality and decay and sin and evil. Eternal life is characterized by glory and blessedness and power and imperishability. Those who believe in Him will not perish. And although we don't really know what the eternal life will be like, we do know that we will be like Him. So, Christian, set your eyes on heaven. And non-Christian, this is why we keep talking about Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus next week, and the next week, and the next week. Because it's all about Him. Him. He alone saves us from the wrath of God. And our proper work as a church is to love the world in a way that the world needs to be loved. And how does the world need to be loved? The the world needs to be loved by an appeal to be reconciled to God. Without faith, there's no salvation. But through faith in Jesus Christ, the worst of sinners can be saved. we sing that. Oh, perfect redemption. The purchase of blood. To every believer the promise of God. The vilest offender. That's, that's the depth. The worst of sinners. Who what? Truly believes. The, the vilest offender. Who, who, who's trying hard? Who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives? And you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not good enough for a salvation like that. The vilest offender. You might say to yourself, You know, I'm just too simple. I've got to get some of these problems right. Before I trust Christ's salvation for me, the vilest offender who truly believes. So it's clear that our views of belief or faith need to be clear. Saving faith cannot be more than just simply trust in a savior. It cannot be. It can't. It can't be. You know, have you heard that silly illustration with the drowning man reaching up his hand to to grab Jesus? No. Why? You're dead. You can't grab. You cannot reach out. You simply trust in His salvation. You cannot mingle anything else with faith in order to be justified. Listen, if you want to know about your faith, if you want to know anything about your faith and whether your faith is genuine, you might want to ask yourself how you're living. That's a good way to answer that question. But if you want to know whether you are justified by Christ, the only thing that you can ask yourself is, do I believe? John Calvin said, Whenever our sins press us, whenever Satan would drive us to despair, we ought to hold out this shield that God is unwilling that we should be overwhelmed with everlasting destruction because He has appointed His Son to be the salvation of the world. Praise God. Amen? The new birth requires faith in Jesus. We'll look at our response next week. Let's pray. We're grateful for your word, we're grateful for your great love. We pray, Father, that as we get ready to leave this place, that we might continue to walk by faith every single day. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We trust you. We can't see it all, we can't feel it all, we don't even recognize it all. And so we walk by faith and not by sight. Father, for those who are here today that haven't trusted in You, I pray that You would empower them to move from where they are to where You want them to be. You do that in their lives. Give us boldness as we proclaim Your great love throughout this community in the coming week. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.